The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. Here we are uh, with the, the Pace Line tandem. I'm here with a special guest uh, of a good friend of mine, Phil Cavell from Cycle Fit in Covent Garden, London. Um, Phil has written a new book called The Midlife Cyclist, which we're here to talk about today. It is, um, it is an encyclopedic and um, deep dive into how best for middle middle-aged athletes of high and low ambition to live their best lives i think have i described it roughly correctly phil yes i think you've described it roughly john <laughs> i've been rough yeah i you know i i this book came to me in the mail and i thought good god phil has used his pandemic lockdown well yeah, I bet you got that book and thought, oh, my God, he's a friend. I've actually got to attend to this, and I hate this kind <laughs> of book. My God, sometimes it's just what you don't need is good friends. Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's partially correct. But uh, as you and I talked um, yesterday, this, this, there's a, an analogy I make where, you know, one of your friends tells you they write poetry or they make ceramics, and you think, oh, no. Oh, no, I don't want to participate in this. So but then sometimes you find out that your friend is an incredible pot maker, <laughs> you know, of great talent. And this is I, I've known you're writing for some years, uh, sort of casually through work, various projects we've um, collaborated on. And so I was not surprised that it was witty and well written, but. It is it is a shockingly good book, and I know you you don't like to. Uh, it's hard to hear praise for your own work, and in fact, I I know that it's painful on some level to even talk about your own work. But, um, I think I think actually this is a very important book. Thank you, John. Yeah, that's that's, it. <laughs> that's as far as I'll go with that. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so listeners understand why you're a person they should listen to. I already know why. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life experience in cycling. Mo I would, I'm going to guess that most of our listeners are Americans, so they won't be in the orbit necessarily of cycle fit, or they'll be further out of the orbit. But why don't you just give us a little bit of your own background? Yeah, okay. I hope most of your listeners are American, John. That is the intention. <laughs> Um, so yeah. I, I'm 59 years old. I'm going to be 60 at my next birthday. Um, so I am a midlife cyclist. Um, I've ridden pretty much all my life. I've raced the decades of my life. Uh, I had a serious accident that fractured my spine and, uh, and in a quite a nasty way. And I had surgery and the surgery made things worse. And then I got an infection and that made things even worse again. And 
John, you knew me through this period. Um, so and I had to take six, seven years off the bike, completely not riding, just trying to manage the injury and the pain. And then I had, subsequently I had surgery in 2017, revision surgery of a more serious nature. Um, and the surgery was very successful. And during the recovery from that, from the surgery, um, when I was kind of recovering and isolating at home and I don't know why I, put, I wasn't isolating. There was no COVID then. But anyway, I was at home recovering and uh, <laughs> I wasn't isolating. Uh, no, this is just how we think about uh, our lives right. now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, th- and then I was just thinking about the book. I started to write the book then in 2017, uh, in, in the summer of 2017. I mean, I guess the other part of this is apart from being a racer and a, a cyclist and a fan um, and a romantic, I, I guess my, my life's work is being, um, cycling a bike fitter cycling biomechanist how you however you want to explain and reference that and that's how you and i know each other john and have worked very closely on that on that basis so it's kind of all things intersected really i i had a bad injury in two spinal surgeries i was a racer who couldn't ride anymore i was a cycling if you like cycling analyst working with clients all day long with their problems and issues it's just all roads came crescendoing in to one point, John. Uh, and, you know, I was conscious of my own mortality and health and fragility. My clients were bringing up, bringing up questions I couldn't answer. I was definitely concerned about them and still am concerned about them. Uh, and I had this time on my hands and the and also the hope that out there there was going to be re- re- redemption and the surgery would be successful. So all that kind of coalesced around the midlife cyclist project nascent, if you will. Mm. I think you've I think you've undersold your work with CycleFit because this is uh, at CycleFit. Not only do you see a wide array of um, quite serious amateur cyclists, you've also done quite a bit of work with professionals. Yeah, yeah, that's true to say. I, I think we were the first people in Europe to sort of attack the problem of bike fitting and cycling biomechanics in the way that we do. So we, we've always got that advantage that we would just, you know, we may not be the first, but we're definitely the oldest, you know, so or the best we might be. You know, so, yeah, there's that. And so consequently, we've, we do see a lot of professional athletes. We were, we worked with the Trek team for many years, you know, during its sort of, period when it was transitioning from Radio Shack into Trek Factory Racing and then into Trek Segafredo. We were there through those kind of those transitions, which is great fun. And we continue to see professional cyclists at a certain time of the season. We generally see these guys from kind of October through to, I guess, January, really. Um, and now we're not embedded with any team. They come to us under their own dime and we work with them um, on a consult consultation basis, which is a, which is a lovely way to work with these guys, actually. Um, I yeah, was, there's a a bit about that in the book where seeing them on their own terms uh, is more successful than seeing them on mass as a team, as if they've been prescribed something. Yeah, it gives and, them more agency. Yeah, and that might be that might be saying more about me and Jules, my co-director. That's just, you know, we prefer to work that way. And, you know, we're like, we're like bears who don't like to come out of our den. I mean, I think there's a bit of that, John, you know. Um, yeah. But certainly we find it's better if the if they're coming to us for their own issues and reasons and then we just work together quietly in our little Covent Garden cave. Uh, 
than you know they're then they're a name on a spreadsheet in some anonymous hotel in Belgium or or Calpe. But that might just say about as much about me and Jules as it does about them actually. Right. Uh, and you've also you've also done quite a bit of work with a British uh very high level British racers, some Olympians. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We had a very good Olympics, John, thank you. So uh yeah, Tom Pickott we worked with for many years. Uh, who's a revelation. Um, so that, I thought that was an extraordinary race. I think he's mm. an extraordinary individual. So, yeah, so we had a good, had a good Olympics, I think, as um, Cyclefit had a good Olympics, I think, um, <laughs> with a lot of the clients that we work with, yeah. Uh, I just want to address <clears throat> um, a, 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 something of a dichotomy I saw in the book. So on the face of it, it's a how-to book. And this gets to, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning about poetry and ceramics. I, I really hate how-to books. I'm not, um, I'm not, personally, I'm not a person who likes to be prescribed to. And I don't like, um, I'm like you, I'm a bit of a romantic. So when, when, when the thing that I've, I'm in love with gets broken down uh, too um, granularly, uh, I, I fall out of love with it. Um, so if I didn't know you and if we weren't friends, I would have gotten that book in the mail and thought, oh man, <laughs> yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be hard work, but it's not really a how to, to book, or at least it's not just a how to book. It's also a how not to book, which I learned in reading your book is something that I do very much need less, less of the prescription for optimization because i'm not really an optimizer but more of a these are the things that you might be doing that are not serving you very well and here's why they're not serving you very well those were the pit bits of the book that suddenly piqued my interest and i thought okay what's what's this got uh what what is this story here and so um for anyone out there listening who also hates how-to books, bear with us here because this book is different. There's a lot of medical science, uh, but it's made very digestible, as you can tell from listening to Phil. He's got a, a way with words, and so there's it's there's not so much science here that the reader feels overwhelmed by facts. The science is there to explain sort of the sensations and the outcome. So I appreciated that, and I also appreciated that. You've treat us, treated us like adults. You've made clear that you're one of us. You know, that story about um, your back injury and the very long rehabilitation, uh, I think, is an important one because there aren't a lot of us middle-aged athletes who haven't been through a long-term injury or aren't carrying long-term injuries. And to know that the author, you know, this is one of my big problems problems with doctors is that I go and I talk to a doctor and the doctor looks at me and says, well, here's the protocol for addressing your injury. And I think to myself, you have not seen me. If you're just going to, you know, like I'm an athlete, I'm not patient X. Um, I'm, I am a different type. I'm not sedentary and I know things about my body that most people don't. So I thought you did a very good job of establishing that you're you're one of us and that the book uh, was really a, a process of discovery for yourself as well. Yeah, I think that's nicely put, John. And it's it's a difficult balance when you're writing a book because you're essentially you're essentially just kind of 
you know, sort of crying into a vacuum, aren't you? You know, in a way, with your, your writing, <laughs> you know, you're trying, you know. So in that sense... It's what I do every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's what we all do every day, John. It's just, this is a bit more yeah. formalised. And yeah. quite right. So you're just... So in, in the book, I just decided to be completely... Not decided, it was natural. I just wanted to kind of just lay it out there. Uh, and sometimes I thought, God, is that too much? Have I, you know, have I just been too honest and me, me, me? Or have I not been honest and me, me, me enough? So... And I don't know the answer to that. And when you asked me yesterday when we were chatting, look, what do you think about the book pre-podcast? I, I, you know, I couldn't answer you. It's like, I just don't know. It's like dropping your kids off at school for the first time ever. Are they going to be Einstein? Are they going to struggle? Are they going to be bullied? You, you just don't know. So you just kind of walk away from the school gates and you, and there's a lot of hope involved. You know, you hope you've, you hope you brought them up nicely to that point and, and, and let's see how they go. And it's a bit the same with the book. I don't know. But I think what I've tried to do with the book is just, is just in a sense, tell it, write it almost like a novel, John. Um, yeah, that's that was kind of my it, goal. It, it does have a, a nice narrative quality. Just to sort of divorce it from that how-to uh, genre a bit more, it has a narrative quality that carries us along. That you know, most how-to books are like, okay, now let's talk about your knees, and you know, and so there is a bit of that structure. Yeah. But but the story carries us as well. And that do you know what, John? If that if at the end of the day that's all I've done, and people come away from the book and say, do you know what? I didn't actually learn anything from your book, but I really enjoyed reading it. That would make me more <laughs> seriously would make me more proud than if they said, I learned a lot. My God, I had to struggle to get through it. That you know, I. Much more, I'm much more interested that people read the book and enjoy reading it. If they learn some bits and bobs on the way, yeah, then that's great. But more, more than anything, I want people just to enjoy reading the book in the same way that I enjoyed writing it. Sure. Well, I enjoyed reading it, but I also learned quite a lot. And, you know, as an example, uh, the revelation that serious amateurs like me, I mean, we could debate how serious I am, but... Serious amateurs like me typically do more high-intensity workouts than the pros do. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have got hold of this. It, it does seem to be some, It does seem to be like a Velcro fact in the book, um, which I never intended. It's just, it's just there um, in Chapter 4. Um, and, but it's absolutely right, and it's based on 10 million kilometers of data that um, Tour de France coaches have got based on their the data they've got from their pro athletes and the data they've got from their amateur athletes and as a proportion the amateurs are working harder for more of the year than their than their pros are it's, it's just um, so well th these guys are doing it for a living and proportionally they're not they're not working as hard as us um, and dr john baker who was you know was, was a was a great source for the book and a lovely man um, you know, called it a whirlwind of doom. That his amateur, his amateur clients are kind of, a lot of them are in a whirlwind of doom, uh, and just well, sorry, I. Well, I was going to say, yeah, that's I. Uh, this was part of when my mind completely opened to the book. Uh, it is a small fact, and it's so easy to believe because I, I do feel as though I'm in that whirlwind of doom. There's this whole ethos around working hard all the time, no matter what. And what happens is you end up, as you, as you elucidate in the book, uh, with this deeply in, embedded fatigue, injury, and demotivation. So 
as a serious amateur, or I, I, I don't want to say serious amateur. I want to say someone who's trying hard to preserve their athletic ability in all of the ways. Um, so I have that experience. And one of the things I've done since reading the book is actually dial myself back. So I'm not at 11 all of the time. Because the truth is, we amateurs do feel that hard work is the way forward and have trouble understanding. I have trouble understanding why that's not the case. Now, you've laid it out. You've explained it. And that's been great for me. Um, I sometimes wonder for myself whether what I want from the intensity is the progress and assume that more is better or that there's a chemical outcome to working particularly hard that I like. Do you have do you have thoughts on that or is it both? Yeah, I, I think that's I do think that actually you've cut right to the heart of the matter there, actually. And that's right. I mean, if, if you think about what your overriding goal with exercise and cycling is, if your if your overriding goal with to the exclusion of everything else is to inflict pain upon yourself. If someone's given you this book, put it in the fire. I mean, because it's just no good to you. If all you want to do is inflict pain upon yourself until the moment where you can't inflict pain anymore, this book is no help to you with that. If you're, if you're, if you're someone that says, I, 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 I do like the sort of self-flagellation of hard cycling, and I do, but I also <laughs> want to improve, and I also want to stay healthy, and I want to be a better father or mother, and I want to be a better brother or sister, you know, and there's a whole basket of things I'm trying to achieve from life and cycling is part of it, and and in a way links all those three things to all, all those things together. This book has got some things to say, but I mean, I've had plenty of feedback from clients and friends and readers and people I don't know saying, "Listen, I just like to go out there and absolutely, you know, cane myself into the ground." It's like that. Then then have at it. That's, I I I don't have an opinion about that uh, <laughs> uh, because it, I, you know that's great. I, I I don't. I'm not. I'm not judgmental of it, uh, and you know I, that's fine. But. This book isn't necessarily for you. If this book is, if you then caveat that, I just like to go out there and cane myself senseless until I bleed out of my eyeballs. However, I'm finding that that's more difficult now and I'm not achieving it at the right, the same level as I was and I don't sleep as well. Then, then maybe the book's got some things to say. So, you know, it, that's a difficult, that's not a very pithy response, is it? But that, I, I think you've hit on something quite fundamental. Well, I'll speak for myself um, and say that I like to, I do like to flog myself within an, within an inch of ending it all. Occasionally, I, I like it. I like, I like that. But you know what? I don't like it every time. I did, and what the, I think the pivot that I made mentally reading this was that twice a week is enough. More than enough. To go hard twice a week is enough. And what I stand to gain from that, I don't, look, I don't care that much about performance. I'm not trying to win age group things. I'm not, I'm trying to be, you know, kind of uh, 90% of the best me. That's what I feel like my realistic target is. I'm going to be 50 this year. I just want to be closer to what I was at 40. I'm realistic. I know that that's not necessarily there for me but i want to i want to do as much as i can to be as good as you know i can for me you know as long as i can so so having said that and also saying that i like to go hard and i like the sort of endorphin and uh uh 
serotonin, dopamine, all of that stuff that happens after a really hard workout. What I don't like is feeling like death warmed over uh, midweek and feeling like, oh, but I really have to drag myself on to do more hard work. And I think the pivot for me is, look, if, if I go really good and hard twice a week, I can satisfy my need to feel that those feelings. And if I can do uh, low intensity work the other days, maybe I just don't feel cratered on the Saturday when my wife says, do you want to go for a walk? <laughs> you know, so yeah. there are all of those life gains. Yeah. And the other thing is, the other thing is, is that you need to be cognizant of the headwinds because you were comparing your 40 year old self to your 50 year old self, you know, mm. and, and you can be as good at 50 as you are at 40. I think that, that really, that is true. Um, but you just need to understand what the headwinds are from 40 to 50 and from 30 to 40. Once you know what the mm. headwinds are, then you can come up with a strategy to offset the headwinds or to, you know, make yourself more aerodynamic to the headwinds. Um, and right. I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the paradigms about the book is if you want to be, be a better cyclist, you've got at 50, 55, you've got to do less cycling. Because, <laughs> well, because it, cycling won't address some of the headwinds that you've got. You know, you've got sarcopenia, right. which is muscle fiber loss. You've got loss of bone minerality. You've got hormonal loss. So, not, and, um, so cycling won't necessarily address all of those headwinds. So one of, the, one of the pivots that's necessary in the book is to say, okay, to be a better cyclist, I actually need to sub out one of my cycling or two of my cycling sessions and put in something else um, uh, to offset the, the headwinds that, are, that I've got in my face. Um, and I think, you know, and that doesn't necessarily need to be a negative message. It can be a fun message. You know, do something else. <laughs> Just, yeah. Really. I mean, it's good for you. I, I have the, so I came to the book. There was a lot of good news here for me because yeah. um, in terms of my activity set, I am already running regularly. So I'm running I'm riding, I'm doing um, uh, resistance training already. Um, and part of the headwinds, interestingly, for a cyclist, is that my other cyclist friends don't really understand this. You know, there's a uh, cyclists tend to have a, a purity uh, about them, right? Like it's all riding all the time. And so I've certainly encountered, or I can tell you that I have running friends and I have cycling friends. Um, and I have workout friends who, you know, we do resistance training and things together. And they're, they are, the Venn diagram doesn't overlap that much. So there was a lot of good news here for me uh, in terms of um, heading off osteopenia and osteoporosis and things like that. And there was also, you know, some interesting dietary uh, input. Uh, you, you don't get too prescriptive about food, but at the end, there's, there's a bit of uh, good advice there. Another thing I actually really enjoyed about the book is that in each chapter, you know, as we age, the news all seems to be bad. Um, you, I really liked that you gave out all the bad news first with the promise that the good news was coming. So, um I want to just get at a, a sort of a series of interesting ideas that you you put out in the book. Um, 
So one of them is that there's interestingly, you know, because we think now with the Internet, there's just data, right? There's data on everything. There's data forever. Um, we can extract data from carbon samples in thousand year old ice, et cetera. Like if, if it's knowable, we can know it. But actually, there's no multi-generational data set of older athletes because we are among the first to be trying so hard so late in life, right? Yeah. And that really was the big driver for me to write the book is that no one had gone back to first principles and looked at this that I know about. Um, you know, never mind could, let's look at should. Um, in, in any other century, in the, in the 300,000 generations that bipeds have been around, you know, we wouldn't be alive. You know, the, we didn't start living till above 30, 35 until Victorian times, really. So, um, so there's, not, there's not a huge genetic imperative for us to survive beyond 35. Um, so, um, and so now we're 50, 55, and we're trying to work out like Olympic athletes. What does that mean? You know, what literally does that mean in, you know, on a cellular level? Um, right. And you're quite right. Nobody knows. Um, and so you have to make the best guesses that you can. And, and I mean, I think I say it in the book, but I mean, how many times did I sit down with a cardiologist or an endocrinologist and say, look, well, look, well what, what's the answer here? And they just said, we just don't know. The longitudinal studies are, are, are going now. We'll, we'll know in some time, you know, but we just don't know. So sometimes you get these conflicting um, results, you know, and this is the, the book really started because there was these scare stories about veteran athletes having these structural heart remodeling changes, which are damaging. Um, you know, I kept reading about this in the popular press, you know, the, the middle-aged sport will kill you and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, it's one of those confounding, uh, you know, results where, yes, there did seem to be some cardiac remodeling in some individuals but the picture of course was much more nuanced so i went back to the source material and spoke to the cardiologist that ran the studies and interviewed them and i've still got the interviews uh, and i'm still in touch with them and we talk very often uh, and of course the picture if you sit down and listen to them talk is way more nuanced um, and mm. less populist and less proselytizing than you know the than, than it seemed to suggest um, but you're absolutely right. We don't know for sure. We don't. Yeah. And and I found, you know, I this was another bit of uh, brilliant timing. I read the chapter on heart health the same weekend that I went out and beat myself within an inch of my life. I, I had a bad dehydration incident during which my heart did some, to me, anomalous things. And so learning a bit about heart, you know, the, the sort of difference in the calcification process within arteries. Uh, and, and, you know, the, two weeks after that, I was doing a race uh, with a, a friend and she had been she'd been to her dentist for x-rays and the dentist had said, do you know, you've got a partially blocked carotid artery? And she began to panic and she said this to me because we were about to do this race. And she said, I hope I'm not going to die. And I said, well, you know, let me tell you about the two different types of artery, uh, arterial um, structures. Um, and, you know, I don't know that that put her mind totally at ease, but uh, I think it did help. So there's just some little bits of information there that I think are so... Um, 
you know, for the middle-aged athlete who's, who's really, um, exerting themselves, there's a lot here to understand just little things, not deep science, nothing controversial, just little bits of information that can put your mind at ease or, uh, convince you maybe that you do need to see a specialist. You know, I, I, in fact, made a, an appointment with my doctor really based on the experience I had and reading the book. 100% serious. Wow. So, so next, next idea I want to talk about is this idea that the bicycle is, in fact, a Victorian contraption whose development has been stunted by the UCI. And I want to know, um, and the story there is that, you know, uh, some... Uh, French inventors and and latterly English, you know, developed what we think of as the the, the safety bicycle. And uh, then very early on in its evolution, the UCI began to make rules about what a bicycle looked like. And as people have tried to evolve the design, the UCI has made those designs non-viable. So how do you think the bicycle ought to have evolved? And do you see any hope for those sorts of changes in the future? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do, John. And, um, and I, I think where the, where the progress is going to come is where we're interfacing human power with electric power. I think e-bikes um, are going to evolve into something quite, you know, once Apple and Google starts getting hold of e-bikes, and starts thinking, hold on, these don't even need to look like bikes if we don't want them to. They can look, look and feel like something else. Then I think we're going to make progress. And this was Moshe's dream, Charles Moshe, who designed and built the bike you're talking about, that broke the uh, World Hour record in 1933, I think. Um, hmm. You know, he, he had that similar dream, you know, 100 years ago, almost 100 years ago, that bikes didn't need to look like how we thought they looked like penny farthings or safety bicycles. What they needed to do was be functional. And the function was transport uh, for, you know, mums and dads and their kids, uh, cheap, uh, clean um, transport. And so that's what Moshe was interested in. But of course, the car lobby and the bicycle lobby in the UCI wanted something different. They wanted something that was controllable. Uh, but, uh, and so that the bicycle was kind of at that point preserved in aspic so it could become a game, and cycle sport is a game, isn't it? You know, we've you know it's a game because we've established rules. A bicycle looks like this and measures like this, and you ride it over that distance, and then we we film it and sell the TV rights, and everyone's happy. <laughs> you know, and that yeah. and and that has a place. I'm not, you know, I love cycle sport as much as anybody, but there is another world out there where there's human power, there's e power, uh, electric power, and the marriage of the two could create something quite astonishing. Um, mm. and that, you know, both does two things, you know, you, it exercises you as much as you want, and it also provides energy when you don't want to do that. And at the end of the end of the, um, journey, it shows you how much you've put into the journey, how much the engines put into the journey and lo and behold, everyone's gone to the supermarket and back. I mean, so I do think there's something out there. Um, and I think that ele e electric power, um, and the combination of electric power and human power is going to produce some startling results actually hmm. it's fascinating and it's it's i think it, it must be particularly sort of quixotic for you in the sense that you're a bike fitter uh is one of the things that you do 
so there's there's human biomechanics and then there's the bicycle and the bicycle creates some hard limits on how the body can move and then so bike fitting is about sort of finding i don't want to tell you what bike fitting is about <laughs> but uh you know there's this idea that you can unlock you can sort of optimize the system that exists um but it's a prescribed system yeah yes uh, Pedals will only float so much. Your knee can only move in one plane, really. And so as you have become one of the world's sort of leading bike fitters, uh, do you feel sort of a frustration with the, the machine as it is? I feel, I feel I'm very conflicted. I absolutely love it. As you know, I am a completely hopeless romantic and I'm romantic about bicycles, as you well know. But mm. also, I mean, Jules and I, we, in the early days, we were so busy and so booked up that we would only kind of cross in the kitchen making coffee between sessions. It's like we literally have 35 seconds in the kitchen having a coffee and both into our next client. For many, many years, that's how we lived. And so in the kitchen was where we would grab these little snippets of conversations with each other. And most of, most of what's in the book um, really is, in some sense, a product of those conversations because Jules would have a difficult client. He'd come out with his hands over his head saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I would say, Jules, you're fitting a caveman to a Victorian contraption. Just remember that. Humans didn't evolve mm. to ride bikes or cavewomen. Um, and so we kind of had these little ways of getting through the day, which is, you know, this is a closed system. The humans didn't evolve to ride bicycles. The Victorians, you know, magic this up out of nothing one afternoon in 19, you know, in 1875 or something. You know, these are the challenges. Mm. And, and that. And these snippets of conversations we had 20, 20 years ago in the kitchen when we were transitioning, going between clients, you know, where we just sort of, kind of had these kind of reset moments. This is really difficult. It's really difficult because the system is so controlled. You know, you can't, we, can't, you know, we can't liberate the person from the bike because the bike is what they're here to – is what's been prescribed for them. Do you know what I mean? It's a prescription. Right. The bicycle is a prescription. Um, right. And we can't liberate them from it, so we have to do our best with what we've got. Uh, and partly that's a frustration. That's a good word that you use. And partly it's beautiful. You know, it's like it's, it's lovely. So you know, uh, we're impaled on the horns of that dilemma. <laughs> it's the palette. It's the palette with which you paint the picture. Well, that's right. Well, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. So you know, you we do get frustration, and, and there's times when it's like there's times when you can't get somebody working as nicely as you would like on the bicycle despite all your best efforts and those are moments of great frustration and i had that moment of great frustration myself for myself where julie was trying to fit me you know after the accident after the first surgery before the second surgery and it's like man it's just happening you know, we're down to one five oh cranks i've got you know handlebars above my ears um you know and it's just, it's not happening, man. You know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, and when one of your best friends has got to turn around and say to you, this is my life's work, but I can't, I can't, you, I can't do this for you. You know? It's, yeah. That's a, that's a hard, that's a hard day. It's, it was a, lots of days. I made it, I made him repeat it just to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, but you know, we have, you have those moments with clients where the, the bicycle is not working because it's so prescription, yeah. so prescriptive. Right. And and you you must also deal quite a bit with people who are self-prescribing. They're saying, "I want this bike," you know, whatever it's it's got to have a 
it's got to have no spacers under the stem and it's got to have a flat stem and it's got to have a level top tube. Now make me fit. Do you, what, how do you, well, I, I know that you do the best you can with what you've got. Um, but how, how often do you think you dispense tough love to your clients? Yeah, I think, I think this is where being older helps. I mean, I'm, we're less prescriptive now than we used to be. You know, we're, we've mellowed a lot. Not that we were ever very prescriptive, but we now will have a conversation with people and we'll say, look, that's fine. We totally get it. You know, this, if you, this is your year to ride that aero bike. We get it. You know, you're 53, your power's off the scale. You know, if not now, when? We totally get that proposition. But it's like, that's fine. But then, you know, earn your position. You know, this, is, this bike's built for somebody who races the Tour de France and 23 years old and immortal. You're none of those things. So understand the challenges here. And try and make yourself as close to them as you can. So do some strength and conditioning. For God's sake, you know, really, really do work on your strength and conditioning. Increase your flexibility. Um, you know, do all the right things. At least try and earn the position that you want me to put you in. Um, mm. And so try and make it into a positive. Here's the, here's the dots you need to join to ride that bike, really. Right. Uh, right. Not just put them on the bike and say, good luck with that. Uh, it, that isn't going <laughs> to work, you know. Well, I found it very interesting, and I think part of what I have always appreciated about uh, your approach and uh, Jules's approach is there's a humility in knowing what is within your control or within your ability to um, affect and what's not. So there's not a lot of hesitation to consult outside of your own fit studio, uh, whether it's with a medical professional, a physiotherapist, someone who knows more about feet than you or, you know, whatever that is. Yeah, I, I think that's right, John. I'm really pleased you brought that up, actually. That's right. I think if we have one point of difference, me and Jules, it's, it's we have good friends, you know, we just and we've never been afraid to use them right from day one, 25 years ago, when we started on this journey. We kind of went, do you know what? We're never going to crack all this. We just need to, we need to cuddle up with some really good people who can manifestly f fill in our deficiencies. And we fell in with the same crowd we're in now. You know, they're all in the book. Alex Fogalo, Graham Anderson, Nigel Stevens. They're all in there. You know, they're all in there yeah. because they're our tribe. You know, we met them, liked them, worked with them. They've injured themselves. They've hurt themselves. We've hurt ourselves. And, you know, and, and those dramas are all in the book, you know, really. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that they're the best in the world or we're the best in the world. I'm just, just saying we've done, we've been on this journey together. I do think they're pretty good, actually. Um, and you're right. So we kind of work very closely with each other and always have. Mick Habgood, cycling podiatrist, um, you know, he's in there. And these are just people we work with all day, every day, you know, and we're yeah. so profoundly lucky to have had that. Um, and I think it's just because we were the first people to do it. So we, because we were the first, it's like a magnet. You magnetize people who are interested in what you do. They were kind of just peering over the fence. So when we said, oh, are you interested in this? They leapt over the fence and were in our backyard <laughs> kicking our ball around and have been ever since, you know. And that, that really has been, I think, the best part of what we've done, actually. You know, just that we attracted the right kind of friends and people to help us. Yeah. Um, well, I think it makes it makes um, what you present here, to me anyway, a lot more credible. There, there are so many books written by, you know, Sven Gallis of various trades. And 
it's impossible to disentangle the ego and bravado and braggadocio. I just can't, I can't believe I just used that word mm, of like, the, <laughs> like it though. Of, yeah. Thank you. Uh, of the author from what they're imparting to you. Right. But when you say, look, we went and talked to these people who did this thing. Uh, I don't know. It just makes, because the book is your book, but it's not, and you're in it, but it's not about you. And I think that that's a pretty compelling, um, for me anyway, and we're friends, right? So I'm inclined to th- to believe you and listen to you anyway, but it just made it all the more powerful for me. Yeah, and that's my question wa- mark. Sorry, John, did I interrupt you there? Go ahead. That's my question mark, really, and it has been ever since the book was released. It Does the book have some resonance outside it, outside of someone's relationship with me people that have like you know me have received the book really well and it's still my question mark is that does it does the book work outside if you don't know me you know uh, or know right. me and Jules or know what we do or and I hope it does I hope the characters in the book you know the characters the people you know that I, st- I hope that they're drawn well enough that you can understand them and understand you know what's going on in the book I, that's my hope um and it, but it might be, it, it might, us, it, you might be, you just like the book because you know me and you know us. Uh, well, no, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I, it's a, it's a hard thing, you know, like you, I'll, I'll never know what my biases are properly. No, so no. it's a fair question, but it is a fair question. Um, yeah, I think it, it's, uh, your publisher will let you know if it works outside of your friend group. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I want to, I want to circle back. Sure. Well, the other, you know, I'll just say on that, and we we talked about this at the beginning, you know, you've done, you've put your best thought, your best ideas, and your best feelings out there. How they resonate is beyond your control. They're still your best, and I I think that they will, I think they will resonate, and I'm hoping really... um, if if listeners weren't clear before, I really want you to read this book. Um, I think it, I've not read a book, and yes, Phil and I are friends, but I have not read a book of this sort that addresses performance, not even performance, but habits, right? Like we're all building this life that lets us ride bikes and do these things that we love to do. I've not read a book that addressed uh, better ways to get what you want than this one. And, and the reason I think this one works so well is because it's not aimed at optimized people. It's not to me, if you are an optimized person who is, you know, only con- consuming 30 grams of caffeine in a particular period and are making sure you're getting, you know, X number of grams of calcium and, you know, all of your workouts are heart rate monitored in, you know, appropriate zone. If you are that person, there's plenty here for you. But if you're just a guy like me who's trying to have fun and trying to continue to be able to have fun as long physically as as they can in their in their life, then this book uh, really works on so many levels. So. Yeah, I, I don't mean to. I'm proselytizing, uh, but I really, 
And we're friends. I almost wish I could mute you for a moment because I know I'm giving you pain, but yeah. And and the thing the thing is in my mind, and I think I think maybe I say it in the book, I can't remember. In my mind, there's people out there who are kind of Peter Pans at our age. I'm I'm older than you, but let's say I'm let's say I'm your age. I'm not. You know, at fifty, they're in they're Peter Pan. They're still thinking and feeling like they're thirty. And there's a lot to be said for that. It's a nice, it's a very attractive quality. And then there's people out there who are kind of the Woody Allens, you know, they're just what the worried well all the time, you know, those seventies Woody Allen films all the time, just you know, thinking about and worrying about their health. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's kind of everybody in between, and it's it's the Peter Pans I worry about more. You know, I've got clients who are Peter Pans, you know, and they're the ones that keep me awake at night. It's like because I, I, you know, they're the ones doing thirty hours training a week, and they come in grey face, and it's like, and they've just got one more sweet spot session to do, and they or you know they've got a coaching program which is telling them to do this, or they've got a great big ride coming up, you know, and and they're. And in a sense, they're in denial. They're not. They're not perceiving the headwinds they're against. Um, mm. And and in, in a way, they're the ones I worry about more. The the, the worried well, you know, um, you know, in a way, their worry is going to insulate them a little bit because other than they've got too much cortisol flooding around their body, and they're in a <laughs> and they're and they're holding themselves in a sympath- sympathetic state in their nervous system, which is not very healthy. You know, they're fine because they're going to get everything checked. It's the Peter Pans that concern me a little bit. Um, and, you know, so I was, when I was writing the book, I was trying to think about that a little bit. What would provoke them to just change? So one of the things I said in the book, is a very long answer, sorry, uh, to something that wasn't even a question. W- one of the things I say in the book is, you know, that, you know, there's going to come a time if you're just, you know, that person you're talking about who's got everything micro-prescribed, there's going to hit, at some point, they're going to hit a buffer or a plateau where the numbers and the dials are no longer going the right way. And that's just, that's unavoidable. You simply cannot increase your age, keep ticking up the years, and also keep t- ticking up the FTP or whatever metric you're using. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing in terms of nutrition and sleep. And but at some point, the curves are going to collide. And the, and the book, right. I think I'm trying to deal with that point there for everybody. What happens when those curves collide? Uh, no longer, do you know what I mean? The parallel tracks yeah. start to converge. And that for me is, is for myself as well, mentally, physically, you know, I can be Peter Pan and deny my age and deny my, but at some point the reality is going to come crashing in. And this book is trying to deal in a humble way with, okay, that we've, let's, let's thought experiment that moment and what we can do about it to still love our sport. Uh, do you know what I mean? And that, yeah, that's that's the essence of the book, I think, it, you know, for myself as much as everybody else, because I had that moment where I couldn't write anymore. Crushing. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, the last thing you want is someone being so invested in performance they think is a ratchet and it's going to keep going one way and it's not a ratchet. And then what happens when it's no longer ratcheting? They, look, they fall out of love with the sport. Not necessary. Not necessary. Right. And there's a lot more joy available from the sport. Yeah. You know, than than sometimes we engage misery as a way to move forward, but yeah. at some point that stops working and you've just got misery. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah. a terrible outcome. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of really useful uh dichotomies in the book. Um the notion of uh macro absorbers versus micro adjusters. So the the 
the macro absorber is the person that can ride sort of any bike and any bike fit and they don't notice any discomfort and they just go, 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 and they can absorb all of it and keep moving forward. And then there's the micro adjuster who notices, you know, every millimeter in change, every degree of angle that gets switched and is in their head all the time about the details. Um, so I, that's a good one, a good check-in uh, for people. I should just point out there um, that, that the, the micro-adjuster, macro-absorber concept was um, invented by a very good friend of ours and colleague, a gentleman called Phil Burt, who for many years worked for Sky and for British Cycling. And we organised, uh, for many years, we used to organise a scientific conference and Phil was a speaker at the conference in 2012 and was sitting at home thinking, what can I produce for this conference that's going to keep Jules and Phil off my back? Um, <laughs> and which we were. And he came up with this. So he came up with this concept and presented it to the conference um, in 2012. And it was just wonderful. And he, he absolutely captured the mood of the conference. His speak, he's a great speaker anyway, Phil. Um, and he just, I think, actually, I think you can search for that online, still see parts of that speech, uh, his presentation. He, so he came up with this concept for the um at the conference or for the conference and it's brilliant so i put it in the book it's because it's one of those things one of those thought experiments you know that you can sort of think to yourself am i am i that am i a macro absorber am i a micro adjuster uh, uh am i you know and so it's in the book um and you can be you can be you can be both i used to be a macro absorber but then two rounds of spine surgery it kind of it rids <laughs> you of that it rids you of that identity you know um, yeah it interestingly highlights for me too, you know, we embody these things, right? So you become a micro adjuster and I'm certainly more of a micro adjuster now than I was 10 years ago, right? That's the proper, that's entropy, right? That's the proper- uh, Time's arrow. Uh, yeah, that's time's arrow. At the same time, um, we, there are things you can do to move back up the that continuum so you know a good bike fit for example can close out a lot of these issues that might just be in your head um and that's that's good and valuable as well pains that are in your head things that uh and i'm not saying uh some are real and some are not but i think if you go get a proper bike fit uh have your shoes looked at all of those things you can close out a lot of these issues and so spend a lot more time thinking about riding your bike and what's good about that rather than what's wrong with my left ankle. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. And, and, and back, to what I, back to what I said earlier, we, you know, we didn't evolve to ride bikes. You know, there's, there's plenty of room in that not, being, not evolving to ride bikes for doubt to, to, to linger. So absolutely, a good conversation with your therapist slash bike fitter is all it's is always is always time well spent. Um, if only, as you say, the issue is a little bit in your head. You know, things are fine. Yeah, I think I think spend time solving the problem, and less more time solving the problem, and less time thinking about the problem. Definitely, correct. <laughs> that's that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And what you were talking about with you know the sort of Peter Pan's minute ago made me think of an idea my friend Caitlin. Uh, presented to me recently about uh, people who are compass people and map people. So the map person is the one who 
gets the plan from their coach and follows it to the letter no matter what they feel because the map will lead them to the destination. And the compass person is someone more like you and me who sort of, I know I know where I want to end up and I know roughly how to get there and I'm going to enjoy it much more if I do it my way. The map people that I know tend to get very, very upset uh, and they are they get they have big setbacks when the map doesn't lead them to the destination. And I think that's what you were saying with the, the Peter Pans, that they've just got to do one more, um, you know, max effort workout and then they're not going to feel tired or, or fatigued anymore. They're going to that's going to set them free. Yeah, I know. I like that analogy a lot. Actually, I was thinking. Yeah, I like that a lot. Absolutely right. You know, and I think you've got to plot. You've got to, at the at the outset. You've got to. What's the goal here? What's the destination? Um, mm. And if the if the destination is just simply to make yourself faster and more powerful all the time, um, regardless of anything else, that's just you know that's that's the goal. Um, and 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 there's plenty of people out there like that. I've got loads of clients like that. That's fine. But at some point, that you know, you're likely to be. There is going to be a moment where you're disappointed. You won't be 74 years old and still, you know, cranking up your FTP by 10, 15 watts a year. It's just not going to happen unless there's some miracle drug out there, which you know we don't know about, which is possible. So you're going to have to. There's going to have to be a recontextualization at some point. It's called cocaine, Phil. It, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, Sorry. It's fine. Um, so, uh, so I think the map and compass thing is is good, and I think if anything, I hope this book is a you know I hope this book kind of reflects that metaphor actually um, that it's encouraging you to set the destination, and then maybe the book helps you sort of set the context and the um, and the, and the, and, the, and the route map out of that you know where wherever you're heading to, um, and I think it's part of something you and I were talking about yesterday, which is. You know, I'm very happy to embrace chaos. Uh, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a negative thing. Um, sometimes it can be an awful lot of fun. Uh, you can meet great people and have great, great things happen to you when you just sort of sit back, take a breath and, and just kind of relax into the chaos. So I'm very comfortable with that. But I do understand there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable with it. Um, and I think one of the book's little shout-outs is to sort of just maybe just gently try and encourage people to start to get in touch with their inner chaotic. <laughs> mm. I, I, well, I am a chaotic like you. I sometimes my wife will say to me, why do you, why do you go off and do these, these things? And I say, well, I like to put myself in difficult straits and then see what happens. I want to like I want to figure out how to get out of it after yeah you know put myself in difficulty and find the way out. Having said that, I do think this is part of what really resonated for me with the book is that as a compass, as a chaotic person, there were a bunch of little things here. There were, I don't I didn't take it as a roadmap, but I said, "Oh, you know, if I do th this differently and I do that differently, Maybe I'm going to enjoy getting to where I'm going a bit more. Um, because while I do like to do hard things, I don't like to arrive at the beginning of a very hard thing, a race or an event of some sort, washed out, injured, and just have to drag myself through it. You know, I want to I arrive there 
sort of capable and rested. And as much as I like to find my way out of difficulty, I mean, you know, being being able to do these things comfortably is even more exciting. Yeah. So that reminds me of something. It's not in the book and it'll definitely be in the next one. The Jules and I, we were at the ATAP. We had a stand at the ATAP many, many years ago in 2009, I think it was. And the attack that year was going over the Vontu. So Jules and I had a stand at the attack, start finish. We were start. We were standing on the on the uh, on our stand for two or three days before the event. It was like forty degrees of heat. It was so so hot. Um, and you know, we were talking to our clients and friends and people that we knew who were doing the attack. And Jules and I were doing it as well. And at the, we we're packing our stand away the night before the attack. It was about thirty-seven degrees and about eight o'clock at night. <clears throat> and Jules and I went. Yeah. So what we should do now is we should not do the attack. We should go to a local store. We should buy as much water and jelly babies and general nastiness as we can. And we should drive halfway up the Vontu because nobody knows what's going to hit. And uh, so I was like, and I agree. Yeah, we should do that. So we drove to a local supermarket. We cleaned them out of bottled water and jelly babies and sweeties and salt tablets and things like that. And we drove our van uh, up the Vontu until it broke down because it couldn't go any further in the heat, which is about halfway up between Bedouin and Chalet Reynard. And then we just pulled over to the side of the road, pitched our tent, got up at six in the morning and set up another stand halfway up the Vontu and just awaited the bedlam. And it was just extraordinary. People were coming to our tent, uh, you know, more than once we had to fly people off. and, And it was just extraordinary. And we just were working all morning until you know, the last person came through, just handing out water and solutes and salt tablets and, and people arriving and just, you know, and, and it didn't really matter how prepared you thought you were. You couldn't be prepared enough. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't that me and Jules would have done any better. I don't suppose we would, but at least we knew enough to know that it was impossible to prepare for what was ahead under those circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and the, per- and the, the people, and what was happening is the water had all run out. So people were getting to Chalet Reynard, there was no water, and then riding back down the Vontu to us to get water. And it was just one of those kind of, that's kind of embedded in my mind now, that experience. I don't know that's why I, very interesting. I don't know why I went off in that tangent, but it, it, I think it was what you were saying about putting yourself in these circumstances. And so, you know, there people were testing themselves pushing themselves, a lot of midlife athletes pushing themselves to absolutely to the brink. Um, and it was almost like there was no way back. It was too much, too hot, yeah. too far. Well, this is the exact experience I had a month ago. It was yeah. a very hot and humid day. Yeah. And I went off on a, a very technical 15-mile run with a lot of vertical gain. And it was a typical stupid John idea put yourself in it and find a way out. And my, up to that point, I don't think, you know, I've limped home from rides and I've, I've just soldiered my way through long runs and things like that. But this was the first time about the 10 or 11 mile mark that my, my body gave up. I, I was doing, I was on a climb and my heart maxed itself even though I was barely moving and I had to sit down and I thought, Oh, that's really weird. And I said, okay, you know, start problem solving. So rest, 
uh, eat something, drink something. And I, at that point, I still had things to eat and drink. Uh, so I did that and I set off again, but very shortly was in trouble again. And then as I went along, every little climb I came to, my maximum heart rate would be lower and lower and lower. Arteries contracting to counteract a drop in blood pressure. You know, I was in trouble. I was lightheaded. I had miles to go still to get to the car. I ended up having to ask somebody uh, along the trail for for water. Uh, And I exited out uh, the trail um, and walked down the road because it was easier to do. But it was the closest I had come to to really putting myself in the hospital. And it was a wake up. And it was the exact weekend I was reading about heart health in your book. (laughs) And I thought, wow, okay. So I my whole, you know, the thing about chaos theory is that, well, chaos theory at some point intersects with catastrophe theory, which is the idea that, you know, your linear progression at some point does fall off a cliff. That's very possible. And I fell off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah, so you went through a lot of what these people on the Vontu, friends, colleagues, clients were, were all experiencing where, you know, that you'd, you thought you'd prepared for everything and actually, you know, you, you couldn't under those circumstances. Right. Um, and yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. So, so chaos a big, I don't know, sure you, I'm not sure you, your approach to that was chaotic. It was just probably slightly, slightly naive given what you were going to do. That's right. Uh, but the problem with it is, is it all it all starts to fall apart, fall apart quite quickly, doesn't it? As my father used to say, it's like a crisis pit. You know, it's like it it's got a very gentle slope to start with, but you know, if you don't go back up the other way, all of a sudden it's just there's no way out. You're being sucked into the crisis, uh, and we saw that on the Vontu, um, yeah, and, and probably would have been there ourselves. You know, had we not kind right. of bailed, um, and. And and I and still clients bring that up with us. Still clients, even to this day, clients say, "God, oh my God, I still remember you two being on the Vontu, dragging me off my bike and sitting me down on one of your deck chairs and sticking my ramming jelly babies in my face and right. salt tablets and stuff." You know, they still bring, they still bring it up. Um, I yeah. think I think a bit of that. I think a bit of that um, mood has, and feeling has gone into the book. Actually, Hopefully. yeah. Well, that's exactly how I felt. I mean, I, there was this sort of magical coincidence of me having this experience and reading the book, but I definitely also, and I'm not a big, I don't believe in omens and I'm not superstitious no. and all of that, but it was very uh, timely for me as a person who believed he could just push through to have an experience that I was not able to push through and then have this book that said, look, here are some reasons why maybe you can't always push through. <laughs> Yeah, and, I and think, here, here, here are ways to avoid it. Hey, look, friend, it doesn't have to be this way. No, that's right. And 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 also, I think you know. Let's be honest, John. Let, let's be honest in two ways. One is, would that have happened to you had you been twenty five? And and secondly, do you want that to happen to you now that you're almost fifty? I mean, and that's those are the two questions. And firstly, it probably wouldn't happen. It wouldn't have happened to you at twenty five, probably. You know, you'd you know, at twenty five, you're immortal. It's like you know, your 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 body right. reacts very, very differently to these things. Maybe it would have done. I don't right. know, but probably not. And the next question is: Do you want at fifty, an age where you know, um, you know, you would in any other century, you would 
almost certainly be dead. Do you want to put your body through that? You know, is it good for you? Almost certainly it is not good for you. Uh, and, right. doesn't, and doesn't bestow any training effect or any hardening or strengthening at all. It just is damage, actually. Right. Uh, yeah. That, that's the point, I think. Yeah, I think that's exact. That is that was my takeaway. Th- look, this isn't helping you. No, that's right. What, it's not helping. This you. thing that you're doing to yourself isn't helping you. You th- you can do hard things that do help you, but this isn't it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think that I, I think that comes out of the book. I think all the coaches and doctors that I interviewed and worked with are very clear. You know, there's the, you know if you're going to exercise hard, you know, make sure all the duck, all your ducks are in a row, and do it in a structured, considered way. You know, um, and then fine, have at it, crack on. But just don't be, don't be chaotic if you're going to exercise very, very moderately a lot of the time. You know, because that yeah. that is a way to possibly embed some harm. You know? Yeah, well, that's exactly. I mean, I've made a doctor's appointment based <laughs> entirely on the experience and your book. I was like, you know what. I am going to exercise immoderately, but I would like to know that my heart is capable yeah. in the current moment of sustaining, you know, something. What, what, what I mean, yeah, I mean, yes. I, I mean, I think I say in the book, I can't remember, but I think I break it down, you know, what might be the kind of the kind of pigeonholes. If you're this person, you might want to have that kind of screening. If you're this person, you might want to have that kind right. of... I think I break that down. I can't remember quite how I break it down, but I do think I break you, it down. You did. And in fact, when I called to make the appointment, they said, do you want to do a virtual appointment or do you want in person? I said, no, I'll be coming in. <laughs> I'll be coming in because I have I have a list of things that you're going to need to do. I have an ambulance booked. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yes. I mean, yeah. So, you, I mean, I guess that what I would say to you, John, is... I would say know when to stop the screening. I mean, I think it's right. You know, you've got a concern. You should deal with the concern. But I would also say as a friend, more than as somebody who's written a book about it, you know, know when to say, okay, that's enough. I've, I've, you know, they've done this and this and this. They've made this, this and this consideration. I believe that to be sufficient now. You know, otherwise what can happen is it can keep going. Um, And you're a lifelong exerciser. You've been exercising quite hard for a long time. You're, you know, your body's, Pretty, I would suggest, quite well adjusted to it. Um, you know, I so yeah. I mean, I think you're right to do something, um, as I did when I had an issue. It's just a question of when you get to the end of that process, um, be sensible and say, okay, that's the end of that process. I'm going to park this now uh, and be sensible at how I exercise from going forward. But I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I mean, that's all. That's exactly what I want because yeah, yeah. I have been cavalier. Up to this point. Good man. I have been cavalier and, and, you know, in some cases stupid. Um, so I just, I, I remember a conversation you and I had a long time ago, you were talking to me about fitting the pros and how a lot of their issues are in their head. And as the fitter, it's not necessarily your job to change things. It's just to help them close out issues that are in their head. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you got to man. You gotta, I d- sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just going to say, and so all I need to do is close out this issue. I had a strange heart experience. Yeah. I don't think it's a problem, but it is in my head. And I understand that, you know, I've raced since then uh, successfully. Um, I, I performed well, um, and, but I just want to 
do this one thing to close out the issue for myself so I can move on. And I, and I think that's entirely sensible. Um, and just, just make sure that you do move on when it is closed off. Um, yeah. The only thing I would say about screening and the more you screen, the more you find is just do the, just do the appropriate amount of screening. When they, when they'll probably do something. We have something in this country called a Q risk score. Probably have something similar in the in the US, where they look at the obvious things: family history, um, you know, what your lifestyle is like. Um, family history is the big one, um, and then they put the testing procedure in behind the family history and what's called the Q risk score. I'm sure you've got the same thing there. Um, you yeah. just don't want to dive down too many rabbit holes. Um, I was yeah. forced to dive down a lot of rabbit holes because the early tests started to show some anomalies. Um, and I was, I was actually very relaxed about it, mostly very relaxed about it. Because uh, yeah. it's just like, well, I'm in it, you know, I'm in it. So and I guess I think the back surgery also, you know, you kind of get, you know, you get a bit institutionalized with this stuff. So oh, I'm here again. So my body's, I'm devoting my body to science again. So just crack on with it. You know, you get, <laughs> you get quite fatalistic about it. But I was quite yeah. pleased at the end of it when I sat down with Nigel and uh, he said, okay, this is what we've done. This, this, and this, this is what I think, you know, move on. Let's go. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There are real physical things and then there are not real mental things. And if you seek the help of professionals, bike fitters, podiatrists, physiotherapists, yeah. etc., you can get, you can focus your energy on the real physical things rather than the things that are just in your head. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's. I think it's an exercise. It's a, it's a, it's a discipline to when you've got the answers you thought you were seeking, to to draw a line under them and move on. Right. Yeah. And I think at our age, I'm older than you, but at your age, my age, midlife athletes, men and women, you know, let's use our time wisely. Once we once we've once we've once we've been through the protocol and done some box ticking, you know, close the book. Well, that's, that is absolutely the thing for me because uh, I'm keenly aware. I lost my father uh, last year, um, and so I'm keenly aware that time is finite, and I want to do sort of as much, as many of the fun things, riding, running, all of the things. I want to do as many of them as I can because yeah. we are going. And so I just, you know, I want to have fun. We could talk all day. I can always talk to you. I just want to close up uh with a few things so for me there's a lot of good news in the book i'm not just a cyclist as i said i do resistance training i run i couldn't help but feel this didn't need to be a book just for cyclists there were there was a lot of bike related content but there's a running book here too is there a sequel in your mind or do you prefer really to stay in your lane so to speak there, there is another book, John, and it's a, it's a, it's an ex extremely perceptive point. You know, I, I can respect both points of view. I should stay in my lane. I know what I'm known, you know, what I know, I'm known what I'm known for. To drift out of my lane um, is um, is dangerous. Hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know is the answer. Um, I, I, I haven't got a running book in me. I do run like you do, but I run with my family. We run once a week together. Um, and it's a, just a little, we go and do five, six K together as a family. I, you know, I can't run more than once a week because, you know, back won't allow it and all the rest of it, but I do do that. And it's good for bone density. 
Um, but I, I'm not enough of a runner to write a running book. Um, so I think there's several themes in the book that I would like to pick up and explore more. Mm. Um, so I think there is a book out there. There is a book out there, a second book. Um, and it will definitely, it will definitely have cycling as its lodestar. Okay. But it will definitely be skiing off piste a wee bit more than this one. Oh, I like that you brought skiing in. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and I'm um, not even, a, and I'm not even a skier. Yeah, right. Uh, I is am as well. a thing. Yeah, yeah. Be, it is a real thing. Oh, okay, um, great. Go for that. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well done. Um, so this, <laughs> so this book is out August twentieth in the United yeah. States. Yeah. It's from Bloomsbury. You can get it. Yeah. So it's it's going to be available everywhere. Um, uh, you can order it direct from Bloomsbury. Uh, all of the big online booksellers will yeah. have it. Yeah. Um, I hate books like this, and I loved this book uh, more than so many of the, the things that I've read in the past. There was there's so much experience and perception, uh, perceptive stuff here. I'm going to stop now. But uh, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. Thank you, John. It's been a lot of fun, I have to say. Yeah. It's, re it's really great to talk to you, as always. It just yeah. felt like one of our normal conversations, frankly. <laughs> this is all I've got. <laughs> this is the only style I have. But, but John, you've got that, and that's yeah, great. Yeah, I suppose. You've I got suppose. it. Yeah. <laughs>